Morning, everyone. Uh, today's reading is 1 John chapter 5, 1-12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Father, take my humble words this morning and soak them with your Spirit, that we might be all attentive to your words and encouragements and exhortations. Bless us with renewed love for each other, a trust in your Son that will overcome this world, and a deeper love for Jesus and all that we have heard and read about him. We pray these things in the name of our beautiful Saviour. Amen. In July 2006, a Senegalese man entered the customs check of a little Mediterranean island known as Cyprus. He presented his French passport to the customs officer for his routine check. But the officer became suspicious. Something was not right. The customs officer looked at this man's French passport and noticed the T-shirt that he was wearing, an English football jersey. What kind of French man would be seen wearing an English football jersey? Turns out the officer's suspicions were correct, the passport was fake. An anonymous police source confirmed, being a football fan, the officer found it highly unlikely that a French man would want to wear an English football jersey. The shirt was a clear giveaway to this man's true identity. Now, in our passage this morning, John identifies for us three clear giveaways to help us identify Christians true Christians, three things that are distinct to the church and to believers. Now, in this letter, which has been at times heavy on pointing out false teachers, John begins the final part of this letter reminding all of us who Christians really are. He says that Christians love other Christians, they persevere in trusting Jesus to overcome the world, and they believe the testimonies about Jesus. So when you look at our passage, you'll see that it's structured in three parts, with with each part linked by various repeated phrases and words. Uh, In verses 1 to 3, you can see that the word love, as well as the word commands, dominates. In verses 4 and 5, the phrase overcomes the world is repeated three times. 
And in our final verses 6 to 12, the words testify and testimony appear in clusters. So we're going to take each section as they come and spend time reflecting on what it means for us today before we move on to each part of the text. Now the first statement you see in verse 1 appears uh, in the first half. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now to believe here is not just to believe that Jesus lived, but that he was the Christ. That he was the Messiah, the one who would give his life in the place of others to save them. And that he was the promised king who was to come to rescue his people. Now in this statement, John is saying that to believe, believing this about Jesus, that he was the Christ, has a supernatural cause. Being born again. Now, this phrase, born again, has already been mentioned a few times in this letter. Uh, to be born of God, uh, to be born of God, sorry, uh, takes the image that we're all familiar with, right? The birth of a baby. Uh, God takes this image that we're familiar with and he gives it a supernatural filter. So we all know what it's like for a child to be born. Right? The life that is growing in the womb now comes into this world and comes into relationship with their mother and father. Now God does this with every new believer. In a spiritual way, he gives them new life and he brings them into relationship with himself. That's why the New Testament constantly calls Christians children of God. To say that believing has a supernatural cause means that you can only believe that Jesus is the Messiah King if you have been born again. There are lots of people who believe that Jesus lived. There are lots of people who can say that they understand bits about Jesus. But only those who have been born again can say that Jesus is their King. The second half of verse 1 parallels the first half as well. So have a look at the second half of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Christians love other Christians. Now much has already been said about this from last week's sermon, so please head online uh, and listen to Ben's sermon on that in chapter 4. But before our passage in chapter 4, John expands on what loving our brothers and sisters looks like. But the point here is to link the string of thoughts together. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah King, it shows that you've been born of God. And those who have been born of God love the Father. And if you love the Father, then you will love those, whoever has been born again as well. Christians love other Christians. Uh, Verses 2 to 3 run in parallel again with the repetition of love and commandments. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. So you see there in verse 2, how do you know that you're loving other Christians? When you love God and obey his commands. And in verse 3, how do you know that you're loving God? If you're keeping his commands, which aren't that difficult. This is not an impossible burden. Now let's unpack this quickly. Uh, Loving God means obeying his commandments. Now the commandment here that John is referring to has already been mentioned in chapter 3, verse 23. So if you have the Bibles there, flip back to chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus and love one another. So you obey God's commands by believing in Jesus, that he is the Christ, and by loving other Christians. 
Now, commandments here are also God's instructions for us in the Bible. How God's children are to live now, that they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. To obey these commands is to grow in your personal holiness and godliness. To become more like Jesus in his love, compassion, grace, mercy and kindness. Now at Salt, the teens group on Friday night, the teens were asked in the Bible study, what are some ways that we can show love towards each other? And the most common expression of love that they suggested was to be kind to each other. Now that's true, but do you notice how in this letter John frames our expression of love? Remember, what were the false teachers doing in this church? They were hating the Christians and they were pointing them away from Jesus and they were pointing to their false teaching and their impressive sinlessness. But John says in chapter 2 verse 10 that to love Christians is to abide in the light. To abide in the light in chapter 1 verse 9 means to confess our sins to each other. And in chapter 2 verse 1, then to point each other to Jesus. So here in John's letter, confessing our sins to each other and pointing each other to Jesus is an expression of our love. In our passage in chapter 5 verse 2, loving each other means loving God and obeying his commands. Our personal holiness and godliness is an expression of our love. So here's the point in these three verses. True children of God believe that Jesus is the Christ, they love other Christians as they love God, and they obey his commands. Well, so what? Now, there are many ways that to show love to other Christians. Being kind to them, yes. Sacrificially serving them, yes. And John here is encouraging us to see that our personal holiness and godliness is also an expression of love to each other. John is encouraging us in this letter to see that our confession of sin and pointing each other to Jesus is an expression of love. Have you ever considered that? That your personal walk with Jesus and how you are growing and changing to become less like your old sinful self and more like your new Jesus imitating self, that that is an expression of love? So one of the ways that we can grow in loving each other is to grow our own personal holiness. Another way that we can grow in loving each other is to confess our sins to each other. This takes trust and personal relationship. And we need to be wise about how and who we share with and how much. And, we, and when we confess our sins, the loving thing to do then is to point each other to Jesus. When you're struggling with patience with your kids... And when we're listening to each other, we need to lovingly remind each other of the grace we have in Jesus. When you're listening to your friend confess for the millionth time that they've stumbled over the images they they saw on their computer screen, we need to lovingly remind them of the forgiveness we have in Jesus. When we've messed up again, we lovingly point each other to the one who speaks on our behalf, to the Father, to Jesus. Sure, we work out strategies so that we try not to stumble and sin again. Uh, we, but the first act of love, our first act of love is to point each other to Jesus. That's how we express our love. Now before we move on, I want to address a question that has come up in the past couple of weeks. Can you dislike someone 
and still love them and still show love towards them. Again, at Salt on Friday night, I did a quick survey around the room and around 90% of the teens there answered, yes, you can. See, you might not like someone, but you can still do loving things for them. I think John actually says, no, you can't. See, notice again the second half of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It's impossible to dislike the Father and show love towards him in the things that you do. That doesn't make any sense. It flies in the face of the Bible's commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mind, and strength. When we are called to love God, we are called to show affection towards him. Yes, our feelings ebb and wane, but our heart attitude must always be affection. And so towards other Christians. Our love for Christians must be the same as our love for God. We can do loving things towards them, but if our heart does not begin with affection, then we are not being loving. Paul uses the illustration of a body to describe what the church is like. Now, you imagine for a second your pinky finger articulated to you one day that it's actually been fed up with the thumb forever, right? And so it's actually going to ignore the thumb, avoid it, you know, not join in on the same task together. You can imagine the chaos your hand would be in. So you too. You cannot ignore and avoid those around you here in church because you don't like them. You've heard the saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Right? Well, if faith in Jesus causes you to become God's children then you cannot choose who will be your brother and sister. So, what should you do if you really don't like someone? And the answer is get to the root of it. Go and reconcile your differences. This doesn't mean just stop thinking bad about them. And it also doesn't mean that you'll suddenly become best friends with them. But it does mean that we begin with this heart attitude of affection for each other. Because we see and remember that Jesus has saved both of us. The second mark of a Christian is that they overcome. For everyone, uh, have a look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It seems like every other week recently I'm getting news about another high-profile Christian who has walked away from the faith. Last week, sorry, a few weeks ago, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris, who was the senior pastor of a megachurch in America and very influential on me, shared his deconversion on Instagram. No longer a pastor, no longer a husband, and now no longer a Christian. Earlier this week, I found out that a pastor at a church in Logan, right, on the south, towards the south, towards the Gold Coast, he, he and his, his church is, was wonderful. But now he has gone after false teaching. He is now denying that Jesus' death on the cross was the substitute in our place. And he's wrecked his church. He's taken half of that church with him. 
And then last night, I saw a high-profile worship leader at another well-known megachurch has come out and said that he no longer believes in God, the Bible, and Jesus. Now, it seems that for these men and for countless others who have followed in the same path, that the world has overcome them. They have fallen out of love with God and fallen in love with the world that John warned us already not to fall in love with. And for a number of people, it's left a very simple question. If these guys could not do it, what hope do I have? John here is saying that the way to overcome the world, to conquer the world of temptations and lures and impressive false teaching, is to stick with Jesus. You see it at the end of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world. This is how we conquer. Our faith. In World War II, the Allies finally ended the battle with Japan in the most immense and horrific way. The power and destruction and widespread loss of life in these moments was too much for Japan and they surrendered. The United States had used a secret weapon as their key to victory, the atomic bomb. Now in our battle against the world to ensure that it doesn't overcome us and steal away our love for God and his people, the not-so-secret weapon, the key to victory for us, is Jesus. Knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, understanding the Gospels in a deeper and richer way. Now, that's not difficult. It's not rocket science. But it is hard work. You don't need to go to Bible college and have a theology degree to do this. You simply have to grow in trusting Jesus. And the simplest way to do that is to keep reading your Bible. Keep opening up every page of Scripture and praying to see more of Jesus in every page. To lean into your community as well. To meet with other Christians and to encourage each other in knowing Jesus from the word so that you can keep persevering and one day conquer. No one gives up their faith overnight. There's always a gradual shift. The small compromise, the creeping suspicion that what the world offers is better than what God offers. But in here is the promise. The Bible says that Jesus, what Jesus offers, is always infinitely better than what our world can offer. It is worth it to persevere to the end, to look forward to the day that we get to see him face to face, and all the effort and the pain and the suffering and the sacrifice will be worth it. Christians overcome the world by trusting Jesus more and more. The final mark of a Christian is to believe the testimony of the Spirit about Jesus. Now, I won't lie, this section is a little of the letter is really tricky. Uh, The wording, especially in verse 6, is quite funny. Uh, My last sermon, uh, which I preached a few weeks ago, was on chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 12. uh, And I was like, reflecting afterwards, how clear was I? I don't know how clear that was. And so I walked back to the commentaries and I had a look and pretty much every single commentator said that that passage was the trickiest passage in the letter of John. Great. So this week I found out as I was preparing this sermon, all the commentaries are unanimous. Chapter 5 verse 6 is the most enigmatic verse in this letter and perhaps in the New Testament. 
It is really mysterious. So as I read, I want you to notice, though, how often the word testimony and testify comes up. Have a look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made God... Has, whoever, has, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So chapter 5, verse 6. What is this water and blood a reference to? Blood we might be able to understand, but water and blood? See, the trouble we have with this is that John hasn't actually made any other references to water in this letter. And here in verses 6 to 8, he doesn't exactly explain what this reference is to, is to either. Now, this is actually a nice little teaching moment for all of us. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible and it doesn't make sense, then we need to humbly remember that the fault is not the Bible's, but our own. John's readers seem to have understood this, so John didn't need to explain it any further. So, my, uh, so the problem is ours, not John or his readers. But still, we've got, a, we've got work to do to try and work out what's going on here. And now when it comes to interpreting what water and blood mean, there's around five different <laughs> options. And I don't have time to tease all these options out. But just let me say that there are weaknesses with all of them, some more so than others. There is, I think, a fairly okay sixth option. So first things first. When we stumble upon a difficult passage, the first question we should ask is not, what does this passage mean? The first question should be, why is the author writing any of this anyway? Remember, John is writing to assure his readers that they're saved. You have a look at chapter 5, verse 13. Right? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Right? Remember earlier in chapter uh, 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy will be complete, our joy together. So with this difficult verse here in chapter 5, verse 6, we have to start with this underlying motivation. John wants us to be sure of what we believe. Another clue as to what this might mean comes at the end of five, chapter 5, verse 6, and obviously you see it in chapter 5, verse 7. He mentions a couple of times the word testify. Do you notice that? Can you see it? When you testify to something, you're giving evidence to the truth of something, to, to something you can know and trust is true. So given that this section is about testimony and about believing the testimony of Jesus, it might be best to see water and blood as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's how I think the, war, the thought process goes. I'm going to flash up a couple of um, uh, references up on the screen. Uh, water and blood. Can you think of the last time 
water and blood are mentioned together in the same sentence? It occurs in John chapter 19, verse 34 and 35, when John tells about what he sees at the death of Jesus. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Who, he who saw it, that is John, has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. All right, so John saw this. I saw it. You can trust that I saw it. I saw water and blood. So when Jesus died, water and blood flowed from that exit wound. The scar that was left behind of this piercing is what Jesus shows to his disciples to prove that he was physically raised from the dead. Chapter 20, verse 20, John chapter 20, verse 20. When he, said, uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Right? So they see the scar they, of the resurrected Jesus and they get it. It was the same scar that he also showed to Thomas to cast away his doubts. Uh, chapter 20, uh, verse 27. Then he said, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Right? So water and blood came out of the side of Jesus. That side showed his disciples when, uh, that's the side he showed his disciples when he was resurrected to testify that his, he was resurrected in a phys- real, physical way. So, water and blood here in chapter 5, I think is a reference to John and the apostles having seen the resurrected Jesus. So, if you'll follow with me, I think the argument in chapter 5 verses 6 to 9 runs a little something like this. The one that we believe, the one who helps us overcome the world, is the one who came to us in his resurrection. We testify to this. And not only us, but also the Spirit of God testifies to this. And if you believe this testimony from men like us, then God's testimony is even more powerful because the Spirit that dwells in you, that teaches you the truth of what we have seen. John is saying, we saw Jesus. The Spirit confirms this, and the Spirit helps us to believe it as well. Which leads on to verses 10 to 12. We are sharing this testimony with you And so there's two choices you have, believe it or not. If you believe it, then you have the testimony within yourself. The spirit that confirms the testimony is the spirit that dwells in you. But if you don't believe it, then you're calling God a liar. You're putting God in the witness box and telling him that he's making all of this up. One of the brothers here at church was telling me his testimony. He grew up in church but a lot of his Christian life was based on his performance. If he was doing well, if he was doing good works, then he felt spiritually alive. But if he wasn't doing well, if he was stumbling in sin, then he felt spiritually flat and depressed. That's what he thought the Christian life was about, trying harder to please God. He came to Brisbane, found his way to our church, and then Pastor Ben started doing Bible study with him. Now, at one point, Ben told him the good news. Jesus saves us not because we're good people, not because we've done enough good works. He saves us by undeserved grace alone. Now this brother replied, I can't believe that. I cannot believe that. To which Ben replied, are you calling God a liar? 
Because that's what you're saying. You're saying that what God says cannot be believed, so you're calling him a liar. Wow. What a shock, right? Give that a go next time. But it's true. If you reject this news, if you don't believe it, or if you find it hard to believe, if you know that Jesus isn't truly your king, then you're saying that God is a liar. Now, you might have very sophisticated ways to say, look, I don't know if it's all true or not. But at the end of the day, you're saying God is lying because you're saying that what God says here in the Bible is unbelievable or that you can't or won't trust what is said. Now, friend, if that is you, then please don't put this off any longer. Jesus is offering you a life changing message. Don't just brush him off. Listen to him. Do something to find out more. Last night I read that JB Hi-Fi, the stores made a boo-boo online. They advertised a Nikon DSLR camera package worth $1,200 Quick buyers were able to order it and pick it up in store within a couple of hours. But a few others had to have their orders cancelled and refunded when JB quickly found out the pricing error. Now, let's say for a moment that you're looking for a new camera, and I saw this ad, and I told you, hey, hurry, JB have stuffed up, go get one ASAP. You wouldn't look at me and say, whatever. Right? No, look for yourself. See, I have just bought one. Now go out and get it before it changes. You wouldn't ignore that. If you were looking for a camera, you'd be jumping online and buying 10 of these, and then driving to Indrapilly straight away to pick them up because you've bought 10, not because you're greedy, but because you know that you can keep one and sell nine on eBay. (laughs) Now, not many of us are looking for a new camera. If you are, you're too late. But all of us want life. All of us want real life, abundant life. A life that doesn't bow down to the pressures of this world. A life that can struggle through suffering with joy. A life that can wrestle with mental illness because you know that one day you will be set free from it for all eternity. A life that can love others genuinely and affectionately and sacrificially. A life that truly understands this world and how to live rightly in it. All of us want that. You can find it in Jesus you believe that he is who he says he is, if you believe that he is the Messiah King who has come to rescue you, if you believe and live with Jesus as your King and you persevere in that, then you will find life. C.S. Lewis, the um, author of the Narnia Chronicles, once said this. Whoops. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Right? Lewis is saying that when we see Jesus as he truly is, he helps us to see everything else rightly. He helps us to make sense of the mess of this world. 
and the mess of our lives. Sorry, if you want to take a photo of that later, show it to you later. You see, trusting Jesus gives you this perspective. Trusting Jesus gives us real life. Have a look again at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is the life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, by putting their faith and their trust and living in with their King, as king, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So do you believe? And if you do, keep believing this testimony. Keep digging deeper roots of faith in your life to persevere. Keep loving the brothers and sisters around you with affection. For that's what a true Christian looks like. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us in sending us your son, Jesus. So help us to trust him. To trust him that we might overcome this world. To keep believing him. To not call you a liar. And help us, Father, to keep encouraging each other in this task as our great expression of love to each other. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.